gender discrimination is literally in the Bible. It is, it transcends. <laughs> yes, it is. Right. It transcends race and culture and geography and time, right? Like it's everywhere. Like pick your part of the world and it's there. Right. And, um, and so it's, I, I have no illusions about the enormity of the norms that we are trying to break that have been with us for a very, very long time. Hello, dear friends. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm Nick LaPara, and on this show, I, along with my incredible guests, we explore what it looks like to live a meaningful life. Each one of my guests wants to lead the planet much better than they found it. Let's Give a Damn family, thank you for showing up. I'm so glad you're here. My guest today is the incredible Tina Chen. Tina is the president and CEO of Time's Up Now and the Time's Up Foundation. In 2017, Tina co-founded the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, which has connected thousands of people with legal or PR support for sexual harassment across dozens of different industries. Before leading at Time's Up, Tina worked in the Obama White House for all eight years as an assistant to President Barack Obama first, and then the executive director of the White House Council on Women and Girls and chief of staff to First Lady Michelle Obama. Tina did such an incredible job while working in the White House. Before leading at Time's Up and before her time in the White House, Tina was a lawyer that specialized in workplace culture, advising companies on gender inequity, sexual harassment, and diversity. Bottom line, Tina is an absolutely stunning human with whom I was so honored to spend an hour or so recording this conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Before we begin, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com, including if you just want to hear more about our guest or if you want to talk about last week's conversation, how, to, how we can get to COVID zero, anything. I'm ready to talk with you. I'd love to hear from you. And right now, let's get into my conversation with Tina Chen. Let's go. Tina Chen, it is an amazing privilege to have you on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Welcome. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Awesome. I am a huge fan of your work, and we'll get into what you're currently doing and how you got there right here in a minute. But I'd love to start um, by where did you come from? How did you get to where you are, right? So I'm always fascinated by the journey, right? Because so much of the things that happened to us, the things that didn't happen to us, the people that were around us growing up, right? They shape us. They point us in the right direction or the wrong direction. And, and we've, you know, we very reluctantly, you know, make our way, you know, make our way uh, to where we are today, right? And so if you could take us back as far as you want to, um, I just love to hear about the, yeah, the, the people, the places, the thing, the who, what, when, where, and why of how you got here. <laughs> Well, happy to. Um, I, I love that sort of like, where did you come from? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I'm the daughter of Chinese immigrants. My parents, Peter and Lily Chen, came, you know, um, short, you know, right after they got married, sort of right in the Civil War that was happening in China, right after World War II, like, you know, fled that, came in really as refugees. I think it's important right now to acknowledge my parents weren't just immigrants, they were refugees, came in 1949 um, and were welcomed here. You know, had what a very different time it was. Mm. Um, they were sort of celebrated. I have a clipping of the day my mother became a citizen when they were living in Ohio. And there's like a newspaper article celebrating the fact that she now became a citizen of the United States. Um, 
but interestingly, my dad, when they got here, uh, had learned from families and friends who were settled in the coasts that, you know, there was discrimination they were experiencing in, in New York and California. And he attributed that potentially to the concentration of Chinese in the, on the coasts. So he decided to take us to a place when he had kids where there were no Chinese. So I grew up in Ohio (laughs) in the 50s and 60s, uh, born in Columbus and then raised outside of Cleveland, Ohio, um, in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood, suburb of of Cleveland, really, you know, in a time when there were maybe eight Chinese families on the east side of Cleveland and we knew them all. Um, So it was an interesting time because I think what I now appreciate about that time is... I just grew up being the only, right, and the other in the room from a young, being a very young child. And I think that is sort of what steeled me to, in my later life, becoming you know, a corporate litigator, where I was very much the only person of color and the only woman in the room um, in lots of very, you know, high-pressured situations. Uh, but I think I was kind of used to it because of that, what I just absorbed as a kid um, and growing up. Um, and doing that. So that, that's kind of like the beginning part. Yeah. Uh, so, so Ohio, right. Not big city. I mean, back then Columbus, I mean, now Columbus is actually a cool place to be. Right. But I'm not sure about in the, you know, in the fifties and sixties. So like, were, were there, were there situations and circumstances? How did you feel being, uh, you know, the child of refugee immigrants, you know, growing up in that environment, going to school, um, you know, friends, those conversations that were happening. How did that, how did that feel? What was going on back then? Yeah, well, you know, it was very much, you were different. So, you know, um, really my, all of my schooling comes from Cleveland, right? So we, when I was three, we moved, you know, up to Cleveland and, um, you know, I have vivid recollections of you know, getting stared at in the grocery store, you know, and pointed at and questions about, you know, where did you come from? And, you know, what's that about? Um, uh, and, <laughs> um, you know, it was kind of like an issue when I got old enough to date <laughs> sure. and a little bit more, remember I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, so it was a little less about being Chinese and much more about being a shiksa <laughs> and then not being Jewish. So, um, so I experienced that, but, you know, it was pretty mild. I mean, it wasn't hostile, right? It was all more curiosity than anything else. Um, you know, I went on to, like, I was, I was the president of all my, you know, my classes and then I was president of the student council. And, you know, so, you know, it wasn't, you know, I think I, I benefited from quite frankly, being in a Jewish neighborhood that was very accepting um, and, and pulled me in and taught me a lot about being active and being, and my parents were that way. My mother was, you know, did the PTA and did, you know, the Girl Scout troop leader and was a real believer in being active in the community and then got ill. She had rheumatoid arthritis for most of my childhood and adulthood. So became very ill, but even then still, you know, sort of her resilience is an example, you know, that I, I think I absorbed as well. Um, uh, so, you know, and I think, you know, the, the anti-Asian, you know, sort of, you know, discrimination that has evolved now, I think it really wasn't as present in my childhood in the fifties and sixties. And I do think my dad was probably right that being in a place where you weren't a threat and there yep. was only a few of you and you could be more of a curiosity and not a threat probably contributed to that. 
Yeah. So at what point in your life did you leave this uh, less, I wouldn't say non-threatening, but less threatening environment? Uh, and wh where did you, where did you go next? Uh, well, I went to undergrad um, at Harvard. Harvard, um, yep. And then after that, got married and lived in Springfield, Illinois. Um, in my um, ex-husband was from was from Illinois, which is how we got back there. And we both were, both worked for state government in Springfield in 1978, uh, which is the time that you know just being in the right place at the right time. You know, I had already gotten really interested in women's issues, feminist issues. Did my you know college senior thesis, you know, in part on the women's movement, um, but landed then in 1978, right at the moment when. Illinois was the hotbed of American feminism, oddly, <laughs> but it was. It was the focal point because Illinois was the only northern industrial state that had not ratified the ERA. Oh, interesting. And you may recall that the ERA had a time limit, supposedly. It had to get ratified by 1981. Had an extension. It was supposed to expire in 1978. Got a three-year extension to 1981. And they had three years to get um, three more states. And Illinois was seen as the linchpin because the other likely states like Florida, you know, were, were states in the South. And um, so everyone came to, to Springfield, Illinois, and I got very active in the National Organization for Women. We were doing marches. It was a very heady time for somebody in their, you know, 20s to be exposed to all of that, and, which was great and taught me sure. a lot about organizing and doing that work. Um, learned a lot from Ellie Smeal, you know, who was leading now at the time. And I think that shaped then a lot of the activism that I then sort of carried through. Um, and then I went to law school in 1981, not mostly because that's the direction I'd always been pointing in. And to my surprise, found that I actually really liked being a lawyer, liked litigating and liked doing it for big law firms. You know, the pathway when you're in law school to go work for a big law firm sure. is kind of easy. They're all recruiting on campus. It's the easy thing to do for your summers. And when I did the work in the summer, I kind of realized I actually kind of like this um, and like it more than starting my career at a, you know, a nonprofit, which I also spent a summer at because I figured the learning I would get would be better. And they sort of adherence to what a client wants, mm. that a client paying for you would be better. And um, so went to Skadden Arps, which is a, you know, one of the top, you know, now one of the top 10 largest firms in the world. At the time, it was kind of still an upstart and growing, um, based in New York, but had a Chicago office that had just opened. So I was like lawyer number 30, right, in an office. Oh, wow. Now about 250. Um which was great because I had an opportunity to, as a young lawyer, do a lot of things. And I loved it. And I stayed for two decades. So, wow. yeah, I was, it was, you know, I've been there over two decades at the moment that President Obama asked me to leave and, and go to the White House. Probably that was the one job offer probably that would have taken me away from the Naturally, <laughs> naturally. Right. So let's, let's back up a second. That is all like super fascinating. So by the time you get to, you know, college, you're already, you know, to use the language of my organization and what we're trying to get across, you're already giving a damn. Like, where did that start, though? Did that start with being the child of immigrant refugees? What were some of the influences in your early life? And when did that start where you were independently on your own thinking, this is wrong, I need to do something about it? When did that sort of, you know, uh, form in your life? That's such an interesting question, Nick, and I'm not sure I've really paused 
to think about it. So I, I do, it, your parents, right, are obviously huge influences. So my mom, as I said, always just from the moment we got to a place, got involved with, like I said, the local PTA. Sure, yeah. She was a room parent. She was my brownie troop leader. She, you know, was doing things, you know, with the city council in our little suburb. Um, so much so that she got like a citizen's award later on in life, right? Oh, because cool. of the things that she did. And so that was, you know, you're looking by example when you're young at what is happening around you. My father... Um, so interesting, my dad. He was an activist when he was in college in China. Was very proud of it. Has a whole long, had a whole long story about how he, as a college student, sponsored this dance that was the cover for smuggling weapons to the resistance, the Chinese resistance, wow. <laughs> which it was wow. he was very very proud of, and became in during the Vietnam War very anti-war, which for someone his position was a little unusual and was very active as an anti-war activist. So I picked that up from him so much so that when I was 12 years old in 1968, went to volunteer for the Eugene McCarthy campaign. Like I, like that was my first campaign experience. My mother driving me to their little office that was in old town in Chicago, in Cleveland rather, um, uh, you know, to go sort of lick envelopes or whatever they would put a 12 year old kid to do. Um, so that's it, probably that, right? It's sort of being 12 years old in 1968, watching all the events of 1968 um, uh, with a dad who was already kind of, you know, anti-war. I remember I went through a period where I wore a black armband to school, <laughs> to Amazing. middle school. Um, and it just sort of happened uh, organically, right? You know, in in that those experiences and then that, that just sort of, continued through to my doing student government. And then, you know, I was a state officer actually in student council. There's a state, you know, there's this national student council organization and they have state affiliates. And I was an officer for that state affiliate. Um, um, Interestingly, Steve Rochetti, who's now one of, you know, President-elect Biden's key advisors was in the same organization. And we did not see each other or connect the dots until whatever that is, 40 years later, we meet up in the White House and the wow. Obama So That's fascinating. So, yeah, so we're talking about, you know, it's it's the, the thing that I love about your story and the thing, you know, as I think about my three little kids, you know, one of my, you know, I, I had I had a very interesting upbringing, you know, with my parents and the way that they disciplined and they've learned a lot over the years. I won't go deep into that right now. I've done so on many other podcasts and we don't have the time today, but when I, you know, I have my three kids and people have asked, like, you know, I'm, I'm, we're, we have a seven, a six and a seven and an eight year old children. And I see my main role, like, I don't see my, my role as a parent is not a disciplinarian. It's not to, you know, always be telling them not to do this and not to do that. Right. Which is a very, it's a, it's an environment that I grew up in, you know, but what I see my role as is to point them in the right direction to point them in the direction of things that are good in the world, things that are happening. And, and for sure, show them the bad things as well. Uh, we've been doing a lot of that lately with, you know, things, you know, starting last summer with 
you know, BLM protests and stuff and all the horrific things that were happening, the things that we were fighting for and fighting against and, you know, leading up to the election, they were very active in conversations about why this is happening and what's happening. And then even just recently conversations around the impeachment, right? So we don't hide those things, but we're, you know, just seeing my role is like pointing my, looking at the good things that are happening in the world, looking at the ways we can give a damn, and then pointing my kids and saying, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? And it sounds like your parents did a lot of that similar stuff. They were leading by example, um, showing you what it means to give a damn in the world. How we have, we, we don't wait around for other people to give us permission to give a damn, to make a difference. We just got to go do it. Right. Um, I love that. I love that you were that in that you, but I want to point out as well that there were probably so many other kids that were observing those same things happening in culture and they didn't do anything about it. Right. So there is something unique about your personality and that's part, (laughs) part, 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 your parents being an example, but also you could have ignored their example. Like so many kids may have done. Right. And so I don't want to move past that. I want to point that out because I think that's important. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on. It's clear that your, your life has been consumed with, you know, giving a damn in a variety of different ways. Um, it's an important part of your story. No, it's true. Nick. I mean, I, I do often, you know, in the moments where I've like been do, too absorbed with one thing that was work or, you know, I was a single parent of young kids, there would be moments where it's like, oh, no, no, no I have to go do this. Right. You know, you can't. Sure. Just, you know, there's, you know, there are moments where different aspects of your life, some of them take up more time than others. And so whenever that kind of activism part kind of shrunk a little bit, it was like, oh, well, there's something missing, right? So I I do have that kind of compulsion, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Yeah, well, we share that for sure. Um, and it gets us into trouble, right? There's just so right. much to do. There's so much to do and it's hard to focus, man. Okay, so two decades at this law firm. And then the next thing I want to get to is your time with the Obamas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a family that I deeply admire for a bunch of different reasons. And you uh, were part, you were one of the, f- really in the grand scope scheme of things, like one of the few people that got to work alongside them, you know, over the course of their, you know, tenure in the White House. How did that happen? And what were, let's, let's talk about that journey, because again, super fascinated by the family, um, love the the first lady love how how she did she, uh, what I love about uh, uh, Michelle is that she in my mind in my lifetime the first ladies that I have seen she did the most right <laughs> she spoke out the most she was the most active she was clearly like supportive of what you know Barack was doing but also like hey these are the things that I'm gonna go do. It seemed like there was, yeah, she she obviously gives a damn as well. So talk about how did that happen? How did you get involved in uh, their campaign and then ultimately, you know, brought into the White House to serve alongside them? Well, throughout my time and, you know, going back, obviously, to even the 70s, as we talked about, you know, my day job was a government, you know, budget, you know, officer, and I was spending taking days off to go protest and for the ERA, right? So I've always had that kind of what I call my extracurriculars, right? The day job and then there's extracurriculars. So throughout my time, um, and especially the law firm where then I had resources to actually be a bundler and a fundraiser, you know, I was, you know, always active on lots of not-for-profit awards and lots of 
political activity in Chicago. You know, was really big supporter of Harold Washington, did a lot of work with Mayor Washington and his campaign. Some of my dearest friends in life to this day come from working on, you know, that campaign. And the women I met, we started something called Cook County Democratic Women back in 1983, you know. Um, and Jan actually is the product. Congresswoman Jan is one of the products of us Amazing. women to run for office back in the 80s. Um, so I always did that. And in the course of doing that work, Long enough ago, the three of us have tried to remember and we can't. Um, somewhere I met them. You know, I don't have like Valerie has this cool story about how she met them when she was offering Michelle a job. I don't have that. Yeah. <laughs> and somehow the three of us met, you know, progressive um, democratic politics in a big city like Chicago is surprisingly small, right? Sure, it's like a very sure. Small town and everybody knows each other. So I was always a supporter then of his campaign, you know, when he ran for Senate. Um, and then obviously when he ran for president, you know, very involved, you know, on the finance committee. Um, people think I worked for the campaign because I was always showing up in places. <laughs> I, <did not. laughs> I was taking weekends off to go, you know, do voter protection at every primary, you know, took my kids right after Christmas to go work in Iowa, right. For the whole week leading wow. up to that first Iowa caucus. Um, uh, it was fun. I mean, here's the thing. It was like a great inspirational moment. I remember saying to this kid, you know, who was my boss in South Carolina when we were doing that work um, on South Carolina primary day, and he had just left his school in New Hampshire. After Iowa, he told his parents he was dropping, you know, out that semester to, and drove to South Carolina. And I kind of wanted to say to him, which I did, it was like, you know, there aren't many campaigns like this, right? It's, I do a lot of campaigns and there are only a few that are that, like a movement, right? Mm. And that is what we built in that campaign. Um, and so then when it was over, um, you know, I had a pretty happy life, Nick. I, you know, my, you know, my one, one, Oldest child was already in college. My youngest was 12 in a school that we loved with a job that I was happy with. So I wasn't really looking to uproot my family and move halfway across the country. But, sure. you know, if it, you know, when the president calls and it's a job in the White House and it's working, you know, on his outreach, that was the first job I had was to run the Office of Public Engagement, which is the outreach office, which was kind of perfect for me. I had to resign from 10 not-for-profit boards in order to take oh my job. God. So reaching out to lots of different groups was kind of, of a natural for me. Um, you do it. And then I wound up staying eight, all eight years, you know, from inauguration day to inauguration day, which is kind of an amazing um, journey to have. That is, that's fascinating. Did you know, do you know uh, Michael Ware? So Michael worked, uh, he, he worked on the faith side of things yes. with President yes. Obama. Yes, he worked for Joshua. Yes, yep. He, walked, he worked with Joshua Dubois, yep. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Michael's a friend of mine. He was on the podcast a little while ago. I've, so tell me about the, the, the okay, you were there the full eight years. What was it like, though? Because, again, this was a very first uh, black first family, first black president. Um, I mean, just so much so much uh vilification this was obviously the time when uh you know his birth certificate was being questioned like this was a i mean there were so many targets on barack obama's back all throughout just people with just just insane uh uh just out to get him not really sure why overall he was a fantastic he is a fantastic human and he's, he was a fantastic president um 
what was what was it like working in that office though like was it was it i'm sure there was a lot of pressure to get things because there were so many eyes right and ears on what was happening in that campaign i would think more than usual what was the pressure like working in that environment? Was it enjoyable or was it like 50% enjoyable, but also 50% like, what the hell? Like, come on, this is insane. <laughs> well, it is pretty insane. I mean, I, I often would tell people who would come to work for us that there is nothing, no, there's no job you could have held before the White House that prepares you for working in the White House. <laughs> sure. you know, there really isn't. You know, I, you could have been the CEO of something, you could have you know, been a military colonel, you could have done anything. It, and it still doesn't prepare you for the kind of scrutiny and pressure and down to the junior levels, right? And you know, this isn't just something that's the senior staff experience because you could be a junior person walking through the building with a bunch of papers under your arm and all of a sudden the title page is exposed and the press can get a picture of that, right? Um, so it, this is not, you know, and it, it is that level of detail that you have to pay attention to, right? how you're walking, where you're going, what you're carrying, in addition to the things that you're saying, you know, because you are at every moment representing the president and the first lady of the United States. And to your point, we were very conscious, all of us, of the historic nature of his presidency and of that family being in the White House and of the attacks. I mean, we, you know, I look at what the last four years have done and mm. the, the lack of care about the office and the image and the ethics. You know, we were so careful about everything because we did not want to give anyone, right, a, you know, commit an unforced error that gave anyone, you know, an opportunity to attack the, you know, the Obamas in some way. And we felt that acutely as staff, you know, that we really could not let them down at every moment, you know, whether it's putting on a state dinner or sending Mrs. Obama out to give a speech, you know, every going on a trip. I mean, the planning that goes into people have no idea. People used to call me up and say, oh, she could just swing by like on her way to Nashville, right? For something that's kind of, you have no idea. Swinging by one place is two weeks worth of planning, sending an advanced team out to scope the place and getting social secret service clearance. That That's the kind, when you do this right, that's the kind of planning that goes into what message you're trying to send. What people do you want to have there? Make sure you're touching the right folks. Um, every bit of detail, there's no detail too small. And yet the platform is so huge, right? And that's the opportunity. I mean, I, you know, in addition to being Mrs. Oman's chief of staff that I moved to after the public engagement, I was also all eight years, the executive director of the White House Council on Women and Girls. So with Valerie Jarrett, who was the chair, we sort of ran all the gender policy throughout the administration. And there were times when I'd read about an article in the New York Times on Sunday, right, about, mm -hmm. you know, women getting chained while they were having to give birth if they were in prison or something else. And I could fire off an email and by Friday get a policy response, you know, from someplace in the federal government. You know, well, I will never have a job like that. Yeah, seriously. That, right. Um, so the ability to make change and the impact is huge um, and is amazing. And that opportunity, you know, to be a part of that is is very unique. So all of the pressure is kind of worth it, right? Because you are able to do those things. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I imagine that it is overwhelmingly gratifying, no matter how hard it is, especially with that first family. 
I'm sure the 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 yeah, just the the enormity of the privilege that it is would right. over would overwhelm the the pressure that you're under of literally having to watch how you walk in and out of buildings, which is insane. Let's take a moment right now, and I'm I'm getting we're gonna we're gonna spend the last chunk of time on Times Up, which is just a fascinating movement that I'm so excited to talk to you about. But we have a couple things to get to before then. One of them is this is this is as good of a time as ever to bring this up. And I don't really love talking about this, but I think it's important to talk about it with you. And that is you were in the White House before this administration, which um for lack of more eloquent terms, has been a complete and utter shit show that has hurt so many people, places, and things, right? Like, I feel like the last four years has set us back so much. We didn't make any progress during these four years, right? In other words, like so much progress was made during the eight years. Of, and I can look at past administrations. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm I'm left politically, but I can look at right, you know, I can look at Republican administrations that I'm like, man, I completely disagree with so many so much that happened, but stuff happened, right? Like we moved forward on this, that, and the other. I don't know that they're the list is gonna be very, very short over the last four years. So having you know, being one of the, you know, the maybe the few hundred people that can, you know, say they worked really closely in the White House to a president and to the first lady. How are you feeling? How are you processing? It's coming to an end, thank God. But how are you processing the last four years? Because again, I'm looking at it from the outside. I'm a, you know, I'm a civilian living in Nashville. Yes, I get to do a lot of cool things, but no, I've not worked inside of a White House. You know the inner workings. You know exactly when you see, you know, when I see uh, press secretary, you know, come out of that back room. Like you know what all you know what all that looks like, right? You, like you've been there. You experienced it for all eight years. How are you processing through the last four years? How are you grieving? What are you excited about? Like, what's going on with Tina Chen just looking at what's been happening the last four years? Because my, oh my. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting to sort of the, the just necessarily speaking personally, not as, as the Time's Up CEO. Yes. You know, it, it was in the early days, we all, all of us, you know, all of us who had come out of the White House, I think, tried to respect the usual rule um, of not commenting on your successor, right? And, um, and, and I have to say that the Bush administration was incredibly gracious. You know, their, the, the transition with them was incredibly, you know, smooth. They provided us with binders full of information, you know, on things in the transition. They remained available to us. I mean, actually, um, Anita McBride, Mrs. Bush's chief of staff, you know, is a good friend of mine now because I relied on her mm. a lot because there's so few people who have held that kind of job, you know, that yeah. I relied on the my predecessors, Milan Revere, who was, you know, Secretary Clinton's um, chief of staff when she was first lady, you know, and so I think we all kind of tried to do that. And then things started to unravel and they started to unravel really quickly. And I remember mm. probably, I think my first vocal thing was in April of that year um, when they started to take apart the adolescent girls education effort that we put together called Let Girls Learn. Oh, which, wow. Of all the things I thought would survive was global adolescent girls education, right? Not that controversial. We had built in three years worth of funding to sort of support it and they started to dismantle it. And so I gave a comment. Although I was still at that point being very, cautious and not engaging in any personal. And I still haven't, Nick, I mean, I haven't been, you know, 
totally vocal, but I did finally in this last campaign um, uh, cycle, could not, I mean, this one was over the top for me and I could not not write something. So I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post after the moment in which Trump used the White House as a campaign backdrop. I mean, to me, that was so horrifying is the use of a building that is a pillar of our democracy that I don't know how they twisted the legal rules to do it, but it really isn't. It's a violation of the Hatch Act. It is, but more than that, it is a violation of what the building is supposed to be. And, um, and so, you know, at that point, I really wrote a very strongly worded op-ed, you know, against that because it's, you know, like what happened, you know, on January 6th. I mean, these are, you know, institutions of our democracy that are supposed to work, whether you're Democrat or Republican. And the only way to do that is to make sure that what you do in the White House, you do as official and as president. And if you're going to do political, go down the street to your hotel, (laughs) right? Or somewhere else. It's not like there is a shortage of venues, right? In Washington, D.C. to hold such an event. And, um, you know, so I, you know, I guess all of us have felt compelled at various points, um, and my colleagues who had been in the White House similarly to get, you know, more and more active. I, I will tell you the one, the one person who, when he started speaking out, I thought, ooh, we got a lot to worry about is John Brennan. If you, if you followed yep. John, yep. you know, in his, in his yep. John Brennan, when I knew him as, you know, Deputy National Security Advisor and then Director of the CIA, was buttoned up professional. I mean, man, there was one time we were working and and he's brilliant. He's fluent in Arabic. He is, you know, and we were working on a speech, I remember, in the early years to give to the uh, American Muslim community that was beautiful. But he is straight arrow. So like we couldn't get him to speak publicly on things when we sort of thought his voice would be good. When he started speaking out with the directness that he has over the last four years about that's what just led me to think this is the guy who knows a lot about national security and can read behind or between the lines of what's yep. going on. And if he's scared enough to be talking like this, we got problems. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate your being willing to share a couple things. I totally understand that. I don't, I'm not under that pressure. Um, I don't advise that you go look at my Twitter feed because I have been very, uh, you know, as vocal as I need to be right with everything that's been going on. And, and, but I, I appreciate you sharing like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is a struggle. And, and, and that's, that's even interesting because you know that this administration is not going to do that for the next, right. Those working in the administration, right? Like this administration has broken down so many norms that should not, should not be, should not be touched, should not be, it, it just, it, it fe- everything feels so desecrated. Everything feels so like dirty and I'm grateful that I think, I believe the forthcoming administration will do the hard work of trying to restore trust uh, in these, these buildings and these processes and these, these, this entity that is so important to, I mean, I'm already, if I'm being completely vulnerable, vulnerable and honest, I'm not a big, like I grew up overseas, came back here. I'm a very reluctant, uh, uh, citizen of the United States, because I just don't, I'm not enamored with it. Like so many other people are, but if we are, if we have any, if we have any chance of being a successful experiment, you know, we we talk about the American experiment. If we have, if we have any chance of being a successful experiment, we have to have a few things that mm-hmm. don't, that, that are, that are rock solid. 
And this administration has gone after those few things, which which leads to, you know, which leads to the other day, you know, on, on January 6th, a president not outrightly saying, go storm the Capitol, but basically saying, go storm the Capitol. And then we saw what ensued. That's just wild that that is the act that, that that's where we're at. And I'm just I'm grateful for the previous administration. I'm already grateful for the forthcoming administration. I just hope that we can like find some, uh, you know, normalcy um, here in the next few um, years. You know, yep. I hope so. I hope so. Um, so let's move on to. So you you leave the Biden you leave the uh, the Obama administration, and in 2017 you go back to. Law doing law, right? Law practice. Right. So I and went back to a law practice and actually started. So I went to the Buckley Law Firm, which is a skin spinoff. Um, and um, actually, they, the, the folks there were really great and allowed me to start a new practice. Like it wasn't something that anybody was doing. And it was a practice on workplace culture. Um, now, this is pre-Harvey, right? So it's workplace culture because I had seen one of the initiatives we had in the Obama administration under the Council of Women and Girls was a working families agenda because we could see you needed things like paid leave and flexible scheduling and equal pay because companies needed women to, to succeed in the workforce yeah. um, if they were going to attract talent and succeed. Um, so we had a working family summit in the White House. And one of the things I learned in talking to companies who were wanted to step up was that they didn't know how to do it. They didn't know what to do. Their lawyers were frequently telling them, don't do an equal pay study because we don't want to find out bad evidence. Sure. Um, so you don't make change. And so I thought, you know, a legal practice where you actually are advising people on how to make change would help. Um, I literally got there around Labor Day, launched this practice in late September, which was about three weeks before the first Harvey Weinstein article. <laughs> so, you know, I had to launch this. I was pretty convinced of its need, but there was a couple of weeks where it was like, okay, is it or not? And then the Harvey thing happens. And of course it exploded and the practice became very successful. Um, but that the Harvey moment is also when I just happened to be out in LA right after the articles and to work actually on another project that Valerie and I do, which is the United State of Women, which is our continuation of the women and girls work from the Obama administration and happened to be pulled into a meeting then that of the women who were working on what would become Time's Up, which really just started as women of Hollywood after the exposure of what happened with Harvey, so many women who had been keeping things internal, yep. thinking they were the only one because that is the playbook of how sexual harassment has allowed to persist, um, realized they weren't alone and started speaking out and coming together and using Toronto Burke's hashtag me too, that propelled it. Um, but they were really to their credit already thinking beyond their personal pain and on what could they do, right? To respond to this and how could they do it for women outside their industry and how could they do it for low wage women? And that was also propelled by this beautiful letter, you know, from the farm worker women, um, spearheaded by Monica Ramirez, that appeared in the New York Times, of these farm worker women saying, "We see you." You know, it could have been mm -hmm. like, "What do you mean, you women of privilege?" Instead, it was a beautiful outreach of low wage women to women of privilege, saying, "We understand your pain and we share it." Mm -hmm. And that elicited a response from the Hollywood women of, "We need to do something that actually reaches those women." And hence was the development of both Times Up as 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 a, as a brand and a movement, and then our first initiative as the Times Up Legal Defense Fund, um, which you know we 
launched January 1, you know, so it's just about almost the, just been past the three-year anniversary, you know, you know, sort of hailed on the Golden Globes red carpet, generated $24 million right away. Like I think one of the most successful fundraising drives GoFundMe has seen. 100% of that 24 million went to the Legal Defense Fund, which is housed at the National Women's Law Center, and has now reached, you know, over 5,000 individuals who come forward for either legal assistance or PR assistance. Um, and then over the course of 2018, sort of led to deciding we actually need, also needed an advocacy organization, yeah. not just the Legal Defense Fund, that these problems were persistent. We needed to work for survivor justice as advocates, but we also needed to work for a world where it doesn't happen in the first place. You know, we don't want to only just be picking up the pieces afterwards. Yeah. We We need to create workplaces where it doesn't happen in the first place. So that is our broader mission now is to work for safe, fair, and dignified work for all, right? So that sexual harassment doesn't happen in the first place while we continue to stand for survivor justice. So that's that's what I want to get after is we need to, it's good that it, it is, in fact, it's more than good. It's amazing that, women, primarily women, feel more welcome than ever to speak out. They're not afraid anymore. That's fantastic. But what we've got to get to is a world where that doesn't happen in the first place, right? That's, it, it, it was accepted for so long. Too many people turned, you know, turned their, their, their eye gaze. They looked away. They walked away when things were happening. And we've got to change that narrative altogether. And we've got to make sure that, you know, I have two daughters, I don't want, if anything ever happens to them, God forbid, I want them, they will feel, we're going to help them feel super comfortable to speak out and we'll help them and all that stuff. But the point is, I want them growing up in a world where that would never happen to them, right? So how do we do that? You're the expert here. How do we, we need to make that shift. This is the generation to make it happen. Again, we've got, we've got, um, We've got energy on our side. We've got social media on our side. We've got people ready to go to work and to fight for this on our side. But how do we tangibly, how does that happen? Where does this conversation begin after it's been, you know, it's it, these things blow up online and we raise money and we start advocacy groups and all that. And I had um, our, our mutual friend Gretchen Carlson on the podcast a few weeks ago. She's a hero, you know, amazing. And we Absolutely. talked a little bit about this, but how do we... Um, she's obviously been a big part of this conversation the last, you know, couple of years. How do we do this, Tina? How do we get this started? If anybody's listening and is like, well, I know this is happening. Um, or, or, or they're just on board with like, if I ever see it happening, I want to make sure it doesn't happen. How do we, how do we get this conversation going more and more so that it literally cannot exist? Cause it still does, right? Like you guys are doing incredible work, but it's still, it's it's still out there. Well, it still does. And, um, and COVID actually has exacerbated it as it has exacerbated and revealed so many other fissures in our economy and in our society. You know, we we participated in a poll that One Fair Wage just released um, just before the holidays that shows that 40% of restaurant workers have seen this increase in sexual harassment. Things like, you know, pull down your mask so I can see what you look like so you can get a tip, you know, or pull down your mask so I can stick my tongue in your mouth. I mean, those are quotes that, Restaurant horrible what they're experiencing during the pandemic when they have to work. Um, so yeah, I mean it, it is definitely out there. You know, we released a report from the Times of Legal Defense Fund and the National Women's Law Center that shows even still, you know, seven out of ten of the folks who come to us for help have experienced retaliation for coming forward. So, you know, we are a long way from even the idea that if you 
are experiencing it that you feel you can safely speak out. But that's the starting point. So one of the starting points is making sure that the policies in the comp- in your company, in the places where you work, have things that aren't, you know, part of the problem was everybody had a policy on sexual harassment for the last 30 years because it's been illegal. Yeah, it's law. It's right. Yeah, it's, it's been in the illegal law. for 30 years. But everybody wrote their policy to the legal minimum. And the standard for bad behavior under the law is really low, yeah. right? And I keep telling companies, you don't have to adhere to that low low level, right? This is one of those things the lawyers will tell you, don't take on more than you need to, except mm. that if you're a company, you actually want your, your, your employees to be held themselves to a high. You don't want bullying to happen in your environment. You don't want, here's a great example, under the federal law, bystanders who speak out for their coworker aren't necessarily protected from being retaliated against. But I say to companies, don't you want people to support each other? Don't you want to know about it? So you should protect the bystanders. Yes, it might get you the one or two, who, if you know, a bystanders mistreated, a lawsuit from a bystander that you wouldn't get because you've put it in policy. But isn't that worth setting a better tone and culture for your company? And I will say that since 2017, right, since Harvey Weinstein, more and more companies have done that. Like, you know, most big companies have revised their sexual harassment policies to do things like provide multiple avenues for people to report. Like you don't have to go to your manager, but your manager who's harassing you, right? And expanded the definition of, you know, um, behavior that will not be accepted. Because hmm. um, we really have to address the root cause then is toxic workplaces. So that's one category. The stuff that Gretchen has been doing on eliminating the use of, um, and you know, NDAs, you know, non-disclosure agreements and yep. arbitration, for example, all of the things that used, were used to keep things secret. Um, but then we actually have to sort of get the root cause. And the root cause is the power imbalance, you know, in workplaces, you know, where, you know, white males are at the top, women yep. and people of color and LGBTQ and disabled workers can't succeed, you know, the actual outright, you know, um, uh, discrimination that occurs, but also the subtle things, sort of the microaggressions, the things that don't look like, like comments that don't look like they're sexualized and yet are incredibly demeaning and are used to put people in their place, you know, and it's, we know it's happening over zoom. We know, you know, whatever's happening in the, you know, the chat, the chat room that you don't see as a manager or how people can get talked over, how people aren't even invited to the meeting that yeah. they would have been invited to otherwise. Um, uh, and so, you know, we really need to get at that, those, that toxic workplace culture. We need more representation up and down the wage scale, because if you have more people of color, women, disabled workers in the leadership, they understand these issues and it doesn't happen. And it creates a different culture overall. And here's the other secret sauce here, Nick, is that it's profitable for companies, right? It, it, Very. it gives you access to better talent in a globally competitive market. Um, you know, we are the only, you know, industrialized country that does not have a national paid leave policy or even sick leave. And had we had that at the start of the pandemic, think how much better off we would have been and think how much individual companies would have been because they would have already had sick leave in their business plan. Instead, we had to like shove in some emergency sick leave that was not adequate, left 130 million workers uncovered. And this package, this $600 package that just passed is insufficient, left that out. So I'm hopeful that the package that the Biden-Harris administration is putting together will have that back in. Um, uh, so, you know, all of those things need to get addressed. 
that are barriers to women succeeding. So it's the lack of paid leave, the lack of caregiving, the lack of fair pay and promotion practices, the lack of equal pay. Um, all of those issues are issues for us at Time's Up. Um, and I will say the most urgent one that we and a lot of our you know, partners throughout the um, sort of movement will be working on in the really immediate futures, I believe we're in a fourth crisis, right? So we have a health crisis, an economic crisis, a racial justice crisis, and we are now confronting a caregiving crisis, right? Because, yep. you know, women, you know, two million, you know, over 2 million women have left the workforce since February of last year. We are at, you know, a women's labor force participation is at its lowest level since the 1980s. Um, and a lot of it is caregiving. It is because they, schools aren't open. They've got school-age kids. They've got older family members who might be ill. They've got self-care issues, um, even employers. You know, I've been watching the Wall Street Journal and they now have had a series of articles that have talked about the fact that employers recognize they can't staff their manufacturing shifts because their workers have caregiving responsibilities. So employers understand this is issue. So we really need a national caregiving infrastructure policies that address both childcare and school age care and elder care. You know, we have a system in the United States that actually in Medicare, you know, over incentivizes putting somebody in a nursing home versus keeping them at home, yep. which not only is more expensive, puts them at risk as we now know, 100%. right? To COVID. Um, and, but that's the way the, you know, the money flows, you know, because of the nursing care home lobby. So we need to address all of those things and have a comprehensive, holistic approach to caregiving. Um, we're calling for it. Um, I give credit to the Biden-Harris administration because in the campaign, they actually had a very robust plan like that was comprehensive in their campaign plans, which I, you know, I'm optimistic and knowing the Biden team well, I'm pretty sure they're going to they're going to keep their campaign promise and address this, you know, and it is a it's job creating, right? It is it is the way to restore our economy, but restore it in a more sustainable basis. You know, not just short term, not just fast cash. I mean, I want those $2,000 checks to go out, but that's not rebuilding structure. No, it's right? not. We need to, in addition to immediate cash in, the, in your hand, also rebuild structures that will allow workers to be able to go back to work with more support on a long-term basis, create caregiving jobs yep. that are good, that are in the formal economy with a fair wage and labor protections right now. Most of caregiving is in the informal economy where people are abused and they're paid atrocious wages and yep. there's no recourse. But the way to solve the sort of supply and demand mismatch we have right now in caregiving is to grow more caregivers by making the jobs better, right? And creating a career path for that. So that's part of the agenda as well. So we will, it's very much a priority for, you know, for Time's Up, for all of our, the folks who work with us and for, you know, working with people like the National Domestic Workers Alliance and Caring Across Generations, you know, a whole coalition of folks, you know, to really, you know, make this a, you know, just shift shift how we think about caregiving in this country. Yeah, that we yeah. see it as a as an infrastructure need, not just as something you're supposed to figure out yourself when you're working. This issue of caregiving has really come to light. I mean, just it's in the spotlight because of this pandemic, right? And I've had two I've had uh, two conversations recently that really speak to what what you just described and what we're talking about. One with Annie Lowry who writes for the Atlantic. She wrote a book called Give People Money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's basic, it, it's her argument for 
the uh, universal basic income, which I'm highly in favor of. And, you know, one of the things she talks about in there, in our conversation is how, you know, maybe a full UBI is what's coming and what's needed, right? But what we should, what we should definitely have, and it's, it's, it's wild that we don't have is a UBI for at least the children, right? Like children are suffering because uh, adults can't, are shitty at their job, right? That's what's happening right now. Adults in the government, adult, like their parents, maybe even like, I'm not saying that there aren't circumstances that, but kids are suffering because the adults can't figure out how to make this work, both from the government all the way down, right? And that's atrocious, right? That kids, you know, there's so many, uh, you know, uh, I was talking with, so the other conversation was with Reshma Sojani from Girls Who Code, mm -hmm. uh, you know, amazing, amazing a human. And, you know, she's introducing this, this idea of exactly what you just described. Like we should be paying women to, they're, they're everything right now. Even, even more than before, they are now on top of other responsibilities they had before. They are now teachers, you know, maybe, maybe glorified IT people is, is more it, which is my, you know, my amazing wife in our home right now, homes, you know, I, she's ITing for our three kids, right? Running on laptops, making sure the internet's connected, but it's tragic that in 2021, we are still so far behind on this, on these issues, right? Way too many like white men still get most of the board seats and the CEO positions and the everything, right? And women and people of color and our LGBTQ friends and disabled friends, like, and they, they get left to the wayside. Like, how is that possible in 2021 with all the data, all the information? It's, it's truly wild. So that makes the work that you all are doing um, even more incredible because I think it's, I, I think you all are doing, uh, a fantastic job. The idea obviously is resonating with people. I mean, I, I love these punchy ideas, right? That's why I started. Let's give a damn. Uh, right now, I'm working on a COVID zero project with a with a renowned physicist, Yanir Baryam, and Time's Up says it all, right? Like, there's right. no, we're not being soft here. We're not even letting you guess what we're about. It's over. It's done. We're not gonna allow it anymore. Things have to change. They must. Let's go. Right? Like that's what I get when I see times up oh, now. Good. Well, that's good. Good. You're getting it. <laughs> that's what that's what it is. But here's here's the thing. I mean, and I'm I'm kind of realistic about this, Nick, is that I often say, you know, gender discrimination has been with us for forever. Yep. This is not, this is not like an artifact of the New Deal or something like that. This is gender discrimination is literally in the Bible. It is, it transcends. <laughs> yes, it is. Right. It transcends race and culture and geography and time, right? Like it's everywhere. Like pick your part of the world and it's there. Right. And, um, and so it's, I, I have no illusions about the enormity of the norms that we are trying to break that have been with us for a very, very long time. Um, but you said a while back, you know, this generation, you know, is the one that can do it. And I, I am optimistic. I mean, I think um, millennials, you know, don't stand for it. You know, they vote with their feet on jobs. You know, like they do things like the Google workout, uh, walkout. They, yep. you know, are, are voting using their pocketbook, right, to make decisions. Um, and companies are paying attention. And I think that's starting to break things down. What happened this summer was amazing on terms of, 
the willingness of folks to get out and march in the streets and make their voices heard. And it's being heard in corporate boardrooms. You can see the changes starting to happen. Um, but we just need to keep at it. And we need really, as I said, to rethink the structures that we have in our economy, because my one thing about UBI is we can give them money, but if we don't create a structure, for example, now that you have the money to purchase care, if the care isn't there, right? If 100%. the job structure isn't there, if the daycare center isn't there because it just closed because of COVID, right? Um, or your employer isn't providing employer-based care, you know, care that you can go and, and get, then you know, UBI only gets you so far. And so we've got to actually reform these structures. So that's what this caregiving piece is about. It's, it's And it's not just daycare centers, it's paid leave and flexible scheduling because those are all the things that allow a worker to address these issues and hold a good job, you know, and progress and for companies to have a part in this. So this is not just public policy. And companies are seeing it in COVID, right? You know, we got companies who are now for the first time using the empty space that they have to open a childcare center on site, yep. or are giving their workers additional stipends, you know, to purchase childcare, are helping their workers with buying Khan Academy or something else to help supplement, right, the schooling at home that they're doing. Um, I mean, it's a great moment. I mean, this horribleness of this crisis is giving us at least a window into a possibility of a transformational change. I mean, literally, I think you we could affect a very big transformational change in how we think about these things. So that's why I'm excited. I mean, it's why I took the job last November, you know, left yeah, my sure. practice was even before COVID, because of everything that was happening since Harvey Weinstein, I thought we were in a transformational moment. COVID has only accelerated that because it has sure. now exposed all of these problems that we all knew, you know, women knew, but now all of a sudden everybody knows, right? Um, and has seen how terrible, you know, the situation is for workers. And I do think there's a new willingness. You know, we did a, a survey that was just released around the holidays um, that showed that, you know, nine out of 10 Democrats, but even eight out of 10 Republicans support a holistic, care, comprehensive caregiving solution. Wow. So- this is, you know, we have a yeah. moment where there's true bipartisan support for doing these issues because everyone is experiencing it. I mean, even if you're wealthy, right, 100%. for the first time, you're experiencing it, right? Because your kids are at home. You've been quarantined from your nanny. Now you've got to deal with it, right? And so it's a very unusual moment where men and women <laughs> and rich and poor are actually all experiencing the same stresses. And that has, I think, given us an opportunity to really address these issues. Yeah. Fascinating. I could talk to you for hours. Let's wrap up with this question though. So hypothetical scenario, I come up to you, Tina, and I say, Tina, I, I believe in you and I'm going to give you, I, I, I just, I just purchased a billboard in every town and city in this country for you. Um, and you get to put something on that billboard, something that can speak to, um, Let's keep it to America for now, uh, even though this is even though this is a global problem. You can speak to every American via that billboard. What would you put on that billboard? This is your thing that you want to communicate to everyone right now. Well, I think it it it's some version. I'm not really good at doing things really short, but it's no, like that's fine because I'm a lawyer, right? Um, but it, it is some version of sort of time's up on you know discrimination and it's time for safe, fair, and dignified work for everyone, 
And then I would also, I would be remiss if I didn't say, and if you want to join us, text now, the word now to 30644 to get more information about Time's Up and to, to sort of be part of this movement. I love that. I mean, that's a great billboard. Time's <laughs> up on this discrimination and it's time for fairness, equality. Um, and I will definitely, uh, all things Tina Chen and Time's Up will be linked to in the show notes. Uh, Tina, I think the world of you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Nicholas Pond. Thank you. Dear friends, thanks so much for joining Tina and me today. Go follow Time's Up on social media at Time's Up Now on all social media platforms and follow Tina at Tina Chen. That's Tina, T-C-H-E-N on all social media platforms. Visit letsgiveadam.com to learn more about what we're up to at Let's Give a Damn. Tina, thank you so much for joining us. And friends, I'm so glad you're here. So grateful. Thank you for showing up. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'd love to hear from you. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.